Thank you. I have been to a lot of do's like this, and I've been greeted in a lot of funny ways, but I have never had a greeting like that before. <laughs> Last time I heard that much happy yelling was when I joined AA. That was the Oshawa Police Force we were doing the cheering. <laughs> That international speaker, I want you to know, we'll take the blame here. That was Clancy. Thank you very much. <laughs> I have a very good friend of mine by the name of Jerry Delaney, and she told me one time, she said, you know, the brain is the most wonderful thing in the world. It starts to work the instant you're born, and it never, ever stops until you stand up in front of one of these podiums. <laughs> yeah. And that's so true. It really is. I don't think there's anybody left out there Nomahods drinking. I think you're all here. Uh, but I'll tell you, I'm certainly glad you're here. And before I forget, I'd like to thank Jim and the committee for asking me down here. He told me to come on down and share a little conference he said he was having down here. He hasn't told the truth yet. <laughs> and, uh, it's really fantastic. But I am thrilled to be here, and I'm very, very grateful. Every time I come to one of these dudes, you know, it just amazes me how you pick out the people to participate in these meetings. I've met so many wonderful people over the last day and so many good talkers just talking one-on-one. -on -one. I don't know how you pick the speakers to come into these meetings. It always reminds me of a story I tell quite a bit, but it seems to fit so well. Reminds me of a salesman I heard about in Northern Ontario. In Northern Ontario, we get a lot of snow up there in the wintertime. He was traveling up Northern Ontario in the winter one night, and he looked down at his gas gauge, and about 9 o'clock at night, and he, all of a sudden he discovered he was almost out of gas. So he pulled into a local gas station to get some gas, and he discovered they were closed for 12 hours. So he went over to a little local hotel to check in, and he found out they just rented the last room. So he explained his predicament to the hotel clerk, and the hotel clerk said, well, I don't know what we can do. He said, we just rented out the last room. He said, but wait a minute. He said, that last room we rented out, he said he rented it out to a young lady. And he said, I think there's a couch in the room. Let's go up and explain your predicament to her. Maybe she'll let you sleep in the couch. So they went up to the room, and he knocked on the door, and the desk clerk explained the predicament to the young woman. He said, and I was just thinking, he said, you know, you don't really know him, and he doesn't really know you, and you don't really know anybody around here, so what harm would it do if he slept on the couch? And she looked at him, she said, well, that's really true. She said, I don't know him, and he doesn't know me, and we don't know anybody around here, so I guess it'd be all right. So he lay down on the couch, and he's laying there, and the couch's five foot two, and he's six foot three, and he looked awful uncomfortable. And after about ten minutes, she went, leaned up in bed, and she said, I was just thinking, she said, you know, I really don't know anybody around here, and you don't know anybody around here, and... What harm would it really do if you shared the bed? And he said, well, that's great. And he jumped into bed. And all of a sudden, about ten minutes later, he felt a tap on his shoulder. And he sat up and he looked up and there was a young lady looking at him. She said, I was just thinking. She said, you know, I really don't know anybody around here. And you really don't know anybody around here. How would you like to have a party? And he immediately sat up. And he said, gee, that'd be great, lady. He said, but I was thinking, too. He said, I don't know anybody around here, and you really don't know anybody around here. Who the hell are we going to invite? <laughs> you know. And I think this comes to a conference. And I think somewhere, your conference committee said, we're having a party. Who the hell are we going to invite? And here I am. So the idea tonight is for me to talk and you to listen. If we can both finish at the same time, I think that'll be fantastic. Really 
And as I came into this program, you know, the older members got a hold of me, and they told me if I wanted this program to follow the big book, and I believe in that big book. And they said, if you follow those actions and guidelines that are in this big book, you may find it necessary, Ernie, that you never have to take another drink again as long as you live, one day at a time. And when I reached that point of deflation of death, my life started to change, and I started to let you people help me, whether I wanted to or not. And when I started to let you into my life, my life started to change, and I became part of you, and the growth started from there. As I look back in my life, as it tells me doing the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, so many things that have changed over the years, the things I have to be grateful for, and hopefully that's what I can share with you tonight. A couple of prefaces I'd like to base my talk on is, number one is please keep an open mind. I'm certainly no authority on alcoholism. I'm no authority on Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm no really authority on anything. Basically, all I talk about is the recovery that I've found through the 12 principles of Alcoholics Anonymous today and what I'm trying to do with my life. And the second preface that is so important is please do not compare with me. Comparison is what drove me out the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous for a lot of years until I finally reached that point that I identified and I identified with the feelings. Then things started to change for me. And as I say, when I finally reached that point, September the 11th, 1970, I reached my deflation at depth and I let you people come in and start to change my life for me. I am an alcoholic by my own admission, my own acceptance. My name is Ernie Martin. I'm fine. No way. <laughs> I'm a member of the Big Book Group from Oshawa, Ontario, and as I say, through the grace of God, Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a lot of people in a lot of rooms like this with a lot of help, I haven't found necessary to take a mood-altering drug or a chemical since September the 11th, 1970, one day at a time. <laughs> And for that, I'm very, very grateful. And I know that date doesn't impress you people, but God, it impresses the hell out of me. It really, truly does. Because I'd love to stand up here tonight and tell you that from the time I walked into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I never found it necessary to take another drink. And if I told you that, that'd be the biggest lie I ever told you. Because I thought I was one of that 25% that they talked about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of those losers, that 25% that was incapable of being honest with themselves because I kicked this program around for 13 years because I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I want to be anything in this damn world except be an alcoholic. And I had a love-hate relationship with this program for over 13 years, and I've never ever been able to explain that. And so many times I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you start talking about the philosophy of those 12 steps or the 12 principles of recovery. And God, I hated your 12 steps. I hated your 12 tradition. I wasn't too crazy about your coffee, and geez, I hated your egg salad sandwiches. I really did. <laughs> I don't really know what kept bringing me back to this program, but I finally kept coming back long enough until I reached that point that they talk about in the big book. When I reached that deflation at depth that I could no longer cope, and I started to identify with the feelings, then I started to do what you people told me to do. And my sponsor got a hold of me at that time, and he told me if I wanted this program, it was in the big book, and to follow the instructions. Don't argue, don't debate it, just do it. And if it started to work, then maybe I could stay sober and find a different way of life. And as I looked in the big book, in the fifth chapter, it says, tell a little bit what you were like and what happened, what you're like today. And this is basically what I try and do. And as I look back over my life, before coming into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've never had a reason or a situation or a place for ever taking a drink. And why I turned out to be the type of person I became, I really don't know, but I don't question it today. I just accept it. But as I look back in my life, I was born into a good Irish Christian, basically upper middle class family. 
the youngest of three boys, and pretty, basically I could have had anything I wanted all my life. All I had to do was ask for it. And I found out I had all the characteristics of an alcoholic long before I ever took that first drink, and I didn't find that out until I came into this program. And as I look back at those characteristics, I was very, as I say, I was a give-me person and a want-me person. And being the youngest in the family, I found out very early in life, if I yelled long enough and loud enough, I could pretty well get what I wanted. And if I couldn't get off my two older brothers, I'd get off my mother and father. And I became a give-me person and a want-me person. Everything I wanted, I wanted today. I never ever wanted to wait for anything. The first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous I ever went to in my life, they were giving out a 20-year medallion that night, and I wanted you to give it to me. And you said, no, it don't work that way. And hell, I couldn't understand that. And through those characteristics, I guess the easiest way to explain it, I guess I became a spoiled, rotten brat. And through the program of AA and everything, I'd love to stand up here today and tell you I'm not a spoiled, rotten brat, and I don't think I am. But if my wife were here tonight, she'd tell you I'm a spoiled, rotten brat. Thank God for al She's getting better. She really is. <laughs> And growing up with these characteristics and never seeing alcohol around my home, you know, I really didn't know what it was all about. My father told me one time he took a drink of beer when he was 16. He said it was the most vile-tasting stuff he ever had in his life and never ever drank again. And growing up in this atmosphere and these attitudes, you know, I didn't really know what alcohol was. But I had a friend of mine, his father, who used to be a very social person. At least I thought he was very social because they had an awful lot of company on Sundays all the time. And I used to watch my friend's father, and I didn't really know what a bootlegger was in those days, but I came to find out what a bootlegger was in a hurry. And his big day was Sunday. It seemed that was sale day. And I used to go up there on Sunday, and I used to watch these guys sit around. They all gathered in a little circle in those days, and they brought out this home screech, and they drank it out of a jug. And they used to pass around this jug, and God, I don't know what was in that jug, but the minute they took a swig out of that jug and put it down, God, they became more intelligent, they became funnier, they became better humored. And I wanted to try some of that magic elixir in that little jug. I really didn't know what it was. And I guess around the age of 15 or 16, I was up at my friend's place one day, and they were passing the jug around. And I always had a thing that I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be the same as everybody else. And finally that one day when they were passing the jug around, I got up enough nerve, and when they passed around, I asked if I could have a drink. And they handed me the drink, and as I say, I wanted to fit in the same as everybody else, so I wanted to drink the same way. And in those days, when you got the jug, you sort of put your finger in it, you put it over your shoulder, you tilted it up, you took a big drink of it, you put it down the ground, you burped, and you said, God, that's good. <laughs> you know, and I did exactly the same way with one difference. When I burped, I puked, and that was the only <laughs> And, and in those days, I never liked to be laughed at. I really didn't. And I remember that day. I can still remember. They all sat there and laughed at me. Hell, I didn't like that. Except one guy, and I can still visualize him tonight if I really think about it. He never laughed. He never cracked a smile. He just looked at me. And he said, kid, if you want to keep drinking, just pour it down, and it'll eventually stay down. And I accepted from the first drink of alcohol I ever took, if you drank alcohol, you got physically sick. And believe me, if all I ever got out of alcohol was a physical sickness, I wouldn't be here tonight. And believe me, I did get physically sick. It isn't the physical sickness that brought me to this program. What brought me to this program was that god-awful inner rage within myself that I could never ever seem to explain to anybody. And the guilt and the remorse and the loneliness and the bitterness and that little voice in the back of my head kept saying, you're weird, Ernie, and you're different, and you don't fit. And God, I wanted to fit so bad, and I never ever knew how. And it seemed for the next 18 years, the only way I knew how to fit was to pick up that drink. And when that guy told me that day, just keep pouring it down, and it'll eventually stay down, I accepted his vice because he seemed like a very knowledgeable man because he knew how to hold a jug. And when I finally got that second drink down, it seemed everything in my life seemed to change in such a hurry. 
The things I do today, sometimes a lot of people ask me where you pass that fine line from social drinking to alcoholic drinking. In my case, the only way I can tell you is I pass it somewhere between my first and second drink. I don't know a damn thing about social drinking. I really even don't understand what social drinking is. And I wish I could stand up here tonight and tell you what it is, but I don't know what it is. The only relationship I have to social drinking is my wife Donna. And she is a social drinker, she tells me. And the odd time we go out for supper or something like that, she likes these things called whiskey sours, you know, and they're, you all seen whiskey sours in a glass about that big. And she'll order whiskey sour and they bring it out and inside that glass they got a grapefruit and a banana and two cherries, you know. <laughs> she sits there for 40, 45 minutes and drinks half of it and gets up and walks away. And she says that's social drinking. To me, that's sickening drinking. You know? <laughs> That ended up my social drink. But as I say, when I finally got that second drink down, everything in my life seemed to change in such so much of a hurry. All my morals and values and guidelines that I went by all my life seemed to go out. And I became so intelligent and so smart through that booze, nobody could tell me what to do. I had all the answers before you could even ask me the questions. And I took complete control over my life. And I was the type of person also from the fact that from the minute I picked up that second drink, I never ever worried about the drink I had in my hand. I was always worrying about the type where I was going to get the next one. Things that I have to talk about today that I don't like admitting to, but it's necessary for me to look back and say that's the type of person I was. I became the type of person for the next 18 years. If I met you in a bar or a hotel or whatever it was, and you had $100 in your pocket, I automatically figured 50 of it was mine. I was entitled to it, and I was going to get it one way or the other. And with these ideas and characteristics, things started to change. And I left school shortly after that. And I went to work for my father. My father was a small building contractor. And when I went to work for my dad, I found out enough to suffer from another disease or characteristic. It was called big shotism. And God, I loved to play the wheel. I really, truly did. And when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I wanted to play the wheel too. My sponsor got a hold of me and said, I'm sorry to hurt your feelings. He said, but there's two million ahead of you and you have to wait your turn. <laughs> so I've never tried to play the wheel here. And the drinking progressed so fast. And nobody told me about blackouts. I didn't even know what a blackout was until I came to the program of AA. I remember from the first time early on in drinking that you couldn't remember what you did last night. I thought that was natural, normal. I thought that happened to everybody who drank. Nobody had introduced me to the morning drink. And my way of thinking, if it tasted good at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it tastes just as good at 6 o'clock in the morning. And that's the way I drank. And sometimes I have a hard time keeping an open mind in the program of AA today when I'm sitting out there and I hear people stand up at podiums like this and tell you they drank for 35 years every day and they hated the damn taste of it. And I don't understand that. I was the type of person, honestly, God, I loved the taste of booze. I really did. I liked the places they sold in. I liked those little brown bottles they put in. Sometimes I even liked those brown paper bags they wrapped in it. <laughs> but I never, ever liked what it did to me. As I say, I went to work for my father, and we were building in houses in a town called Kingston at that time, and I remember one Thursday night, I walked out of my dad, and I said, I'm going out for a draft of beer. Don't ask me why I remember it was a Thursday night, I just did. And as true as I stand here tonight, and I'm not about to tell you any lies, ladies and gentlemen, that's all I ever went out for in my life was a drink. I never wanted to be a drunk. I didn't want to turn out to be a drunk, and to be honest about it, I don't like a drunk to this very day. But every time I took a drink, it seemed that's the type of person I turned out to be. And I took a drink on that particular Thursday night in Kingston. The following Monday morning, I woke up in a clinic in Toronto. And when I came to in that clinic, or came out of the blackout, I remember there was a doctor sitting there, and he was talking to me, and he was asking me some questions. He handed me a sheet of paper and asked me to answer the questions to the best of my ability, and I did, and I handed him back the sheet, and he seemed to sit there and study it for a while. 
Then he put the sheet down. He said, Ernie, he said, you have a disease, a disease you'll have until the day you die. And he said, there's absolutely no cure for it. And he said, you're a chronic alcoholic. I remember thinking back in those days, I wasn't too sure what the hell that word chronic meant, but I sure knew what an alcoholic was, and it wasn't me. You see, the myths I'd been brought up with all my life, an alcoholic was some guy standing on the four corners in Toronto selling pencils out of a tin cup, drinking wine out of a brown paper sack, and sleeping under park benches. That was an alcoholic. Here I was, 19 years of age, my father in business, my 300-buck suits, and my new car outside. How could I possibly be an alcoholic? And I remember Dr. Bell telling me that day, he said, Ernie, if you have any problem living or accepting life or accepting reality, he says, when you get out of this clinic, you come on back here and we'll try and help you. He said, as far as the disease of alcoholism goes, remember, you can never safely take another drink. And when that man said that, I never had a bigger fear come over me in my life. And please remember, ladies and gentlemen, I was 19 years old, and I couldn't visualize living in this world without alcohol. And he also said that day, he said, there's no cure for your disease, Ernie. He said, but there's an organization here in Toronto, and he's had, they've had great success rate with showing you how to arrest the disease. And I strongly suggest you go there, and it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I got out of that hospital some 14 days later, with that thought running through my head that I could never take another drink again, I just couldn't visualize living in this world without drinking. And the very first place I went to was one of the local watering holes to think it over. And I went in, I ordered a drink, and it seemed I sat there and looked at it for about 20 minutes. And when, as I look back now, it was more than likely about two seconds. And I picked it up and drank it, and not a damn thing happened. Like the floor didn't fall in, the waiter didn't drop dead, nothing happened. And I thought, he's wrong, I can't be an alcoholic. And the more I drank, the more intelligent I became. God, I miss that today. I really And I got sitting there thinking that time because I knew the progression of alcoholism. I really didn't know what it was, but I knew I didn't drink the same as other people, and I knew I was changing, and I knew I was lying, and I knew things were changing completely in my life. And I got thinking, I've got to get out of this. If I could just smarten up and grow up and be right, I'd be like all you other earth people, and everything would be okay. And the thought came to me that day, if I could just get some responsibility, I'd be like everybody else, and I'd be all right. And I thought, what I'll do, I'll go out and get married, and that will give me the responsibility I'm looking for, and everything's going to be all right from there. And please, God, I hope there's somebody new here tonight that's coming around for the first or second time or coming back to meetings. And believe me, if you are and you're looking for a way to stop drinking and change your life, the answer is right in this room tonight. That person sitting right beside you might have the answers and save your life. But please, don't do the things I did. If you walk in here tonight and you're looking for a way to quit drinking, don't charge up the meeting. After this meeting, get married. It's not about to help your drinking too much. But of all the decisions I ever made, I don't think I made that one by myself. I married my wife, Donna, and that woman's been hanging in with me for the last 30 years. And how in the hell she ever stayed with me, I'll never, ever know. I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be alive or anything else if it wasn't for my wife, Donna. And she stood behind me all those years. Sometimes a hell of a long way behind me, but she was always alive. And I got married on a Saturday, and my dad claimed bankruptcy on Monday, and God, I thought he did that to me on purpose, too, and I had to go to work. And I never liked manual labor, and I still don't to this very day. And you see, anything I did all my life, I had to be a success at, and it had to be big, and it had to be flashy, and it had to be up front where everybody could see how well I was doing. And I looked around, and all successful guys I knew were salesmen, successful salesmen who hung out in bars all afternoon. And that's what I want to be, a successful salesman who hung out in the bar all afternoon. And that's the business I got into. And my wife told me she knew the way I drank, and she changed me, and she did. She made me worse. And, you know, she didn't know. 
and we're married a very short time and she found out the way I drank and she didn't like it. You see, again, the progression of alcoholism that they talk about in the big book was cunning and baffling. It was completely taking over. And by this time, I got to the fact that, you know, I couldn't even get out of bed in the morning without that morning drink. And by this time, I graduated to wine. And it was good stuff. And my wife never reads the personal columns. I know she doesn't. And why she picked up the Toronto Star that day, I'll never know. But she read the personal column and there was a little ad and there said, if you have a drinking problem, call this number. And my wife had a drinking problem, me. <laughs> and she called the number. And she started to demand they send somebody out there to straighten me up and sober me up and everything else, but they told her she couldn't do that. And they also told my wife that day if she could possibly get me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, just maybe somebody there had the answers that would save my life. And I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in the old 12-step group in the city of Toronto. It was 1958, and I just turned 20 years of age. And the average age around Alcoholics Anonymous at that time was a real old, 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 over the hill, about 40. <laughs> and, and I thought, my God, when you're that old, you should quit drinking <laughs> anyway. You know, you're ready for retirement. I never realized till today, 50, you're just a chicken. You really are. And a woman met me at the door that night. She asked me if I was there with my father. And I said, no, I wasn't telling her any different. And also, as I told you earlier, they were giving out a 20-year medallion that night. And they had imported the speaker all the way from the city of Oshawa, a guy by the name of Davy Thompson. And Davy had an impediment in his speech. And Davy was funny and he was humorous and he got me laughing. But the most important thing, after that meeting, he backed me up in the corner. And God, Davy was trying to sober up the whole world. And when he backed me up in that corner, he said, Listen, Ernie, he said, if I can possibly help you with your drinking or with any problems you're having in this program, he said, you give me a call. And that's the worst thing that man could have ever said to me because I called him for the next 28 years at some of the strangest times at the strangest places with the strangest problems you never heard of in your life. And that man never, ever said no to me till last March the 23rd when he died. Sponsorship to me is the second most important thing in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The first is getting here and the second is getting that right sponsor. He saved my life and he showed me a way of life, the second to none. And for that, I'm entirely grateful for him. And I'll never forget that. <clears throat> But also at the meeting that night, the way I was thinking, I heard everybody say it was great to be here at your age. You don't have to walk around the dump. Make sure you come back next week. I don't remember anybody saying stop drinking. They just said come back next week. <laughs> and I go across one of the local bars and have a few drinks and go home. My wife couldn't figure out what was going on. She wasn't too swift in those days. It took her about three seconds to smarten up, though. But she finally figured out one thing. She didn't know anything about AA, but she realized you didn't go there sober and come home drunk. She knew it didn't work that way. So finally, after going around these meetings for a while, she forced me into taking her to a meeting one night to see what you people were doing to me. And I took her to a meeting of the old Cheerio group in the city of Toronto. At that time, it was right downtown, the slums of Toronto. And I heard a speaker that night like nothing I've ever heard in my life before and nothing I've ever heard since. And I wish to God I could meet the man today to apologize to him. Not for anything I said, just for what I thought. And he stood up in a meeting that night with a much smaller crowd. And he started talking about his drinking, and he started talking about drinking in early age, switching from beer on to hard stuff, hard stuff on to substitutes. He talked about car accidents and losing licenses and hospitals and jails and mental institutions and nervous breakdowns and bankruptcies. And he ended up the whole thing by saying, I'm an alcoholic. And I remember turning to my wife Donna that night and I said, my God, Donna, I've never done anything like that in my life. I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. And Donna says if she could take back anything she ever said in her life, she'd take back what she said that night. She said, no, I guess you're not. And God, that gave me the freedom to go. 
But that man said one other thing that night, ladies and gentlemen, some 29 years ago in the city of Toronto, and it was to haunt me for the next 13 years. And please, if you never listen to another word I say tonight, please listen to what I'm telling you now. Because this man told me the same thing some 29 years ago. He said, if you're in this room and you have a problem with alcohol, believe me, the answers are here. Maybe you haven't drank the things I've drank, or maybe you haven't been to the places I've been to, or maybe you haven't faced the situations I've been through. And believe me, if you haven't been there, you don't have to go. But if you're sitting out there with your closed mind and your negative attitude, and you get up and you walk out of this room and you continue on drinking, I'll absolutely guarantee you, my friends, you'll get where I got to. And I sat there with my negative attitude and my closed mind some 29 years ago and said, not me, man. I'm different. And to make a long story short, my friends, I was different, all right. I was a hell of a lot worse, and I didn't know it. Everything they told me in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has always come true. And for the next 13 years, I bounced in and out of this program, and every time I got so low in life, I thought, my God, I can't go any lower than this. I found out there's a bottom to a bottom to a bottom that it never, ever stopped. And I can stand up here tonight and I can tell you about the hospitals and the jails and the mental institutions and trying to live better electrically and the broken homes and the nervous breakdown. Everything they told me would happen, it happened. And I thought, my God, you've ruined my whole life. You know, what are you people doing to me? And this responsibility I was looking for, all of a sudden I found it. I walked home one night and I'm married about 12 months or 13 months and Donna told me she was pregnant. And I wonder how the hell that happened. Took me four times later to find out, you know, how it happened. And I remember the night my son Ernie was born. I was up in East General Hospital, and I remember sitting on that bed, and, you know, she told me I had a son. And I said, geez, that's great, hon. You stick with me, and I'll buy a Castleoma. And really, when I said that, and I was so sincere and so positive, and I meant it. You see, all I ever wanted to be all my life was be a good husband and be a good father and be a decent member of the community. And when I walked out of that hospital, somebody offered me a drink, and I never saw her again for six days. That's the type of person I turned out to be. I took one drink and I lost all control. And the hell and damnation seemed to start from there and it never got any better. Now all of a sudden I've got this responsibility I'm looking for and hell, I didn't even know how to handle it. I couldn't even look after me. I was a utopia of immaturity. I really was. God, I had a wife and a kid and somebody wanted to pay rent and buy groceries. And hell, I couldn't keep up with all my intellectual friends if I looked after all those commitments, you know, so I wouldn't do it. And all of a sudden I woke up one day and walked out of the house and I said, Don, I'll see you later. And if anybody said to me, you'll see her a year later, I would have said, you're crazy. But again, I went to my intellectual friends and they told me if I get away from all the rounders and grifters that I was hanging around with and do that geographical cure, everything would be all right. And again, I ran home to Mama and bummed some money and got on a plane and went to California because, you see, if I could get away from all those people who were dragging me down, everything was going to be different. And when I got off that plane in California, some 2,600 miles away, the saddest thing in the world happened to me because the very first person I met when I got off that plane was me. And I hadn't changed one damn bit. 2,600 miles away, I had to take me with me. And my oldest brother lived in Los Angeles at that time. When I arrived there that night, he had all the neighbors and friends in to meet his young brother through a great big party. And when I left there a year later, ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell you, he didn't have no party. He was just glad to get rid of me. And I was just a working bum. I really was. And I don't even remember being there for a whole year. And finally, after a year, I made that big decision. I came back to Canada, you know, take over the reins and look after Don again. And, you know, I went to my brother, and I'd asked him if he'd lend me the money to get back, and he never hesitated. He said, yes. Believe me, at that time, God, he would have hawked his soul to get me out of California. He really would have. 
And I go back to that passage in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the way I interpret it. It says so many times, did you hurt anybody in your drink? And my battle cry for so many years was, no, I never hurt anybody. Leave me alone and get off my back. The only person I'm hurting is me. I forgot about the fact I left a wife and a three-month-old baby in the city of Toronto with no visible means of support, you know, just me down in California. And again, my brother drove me out to Los Angeles Airport that night, and you know, he said he was going to give me the money, but so far he still hadn't produced money. And we got out to LA Airport, and in those days, a little jetty came in, picked you up, take you out to the plane, and you still no ticket, no money, no nothing. And again, that passage in the big book comes back and said, did you affect people in your drinking? And I said, no. And finally, when I got on that little jet, he handed me the ticket, and I'll never forget that ticket till the day I die. When he handed me the ticket, stamped right across the front of it, said, non-transferable, non-cashable, and non-returnable. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and back I came to Canada, back in Bandon yeah. And back to Donna, so many times, in those crocodile tears, and down on my knees, and saying, give me one more chance, hon, everything will be different this time. And she gave me the chance of the condition that I come back to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And back I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've had a love-hate relationship with this program for 13 years that I could never ever seem to explain to anybody. And I've had a love affair with the old-timers of Alcoholics Anonymous for over 30 years. People that were here, they kept the doors open, to keep the doors open for people like me, and I don't think they'd ever seen a kook like me come into the program. And I know your members down here are no different than the old-timers we've got in Toronto around Oshawa. Sometimes you look at them, you know, and they're leaning against the wall, and they, honest to God, they look like they're drawing their last breath. They really, truly do. <laughs> if you're new, you try and get out that door and see how fast they can move. <laughs> and they'd put out their hand to me and say, how you doing there? And I'd put my hand in my pocket and say, none of your damn business. And they'd just smile at me and say, keep coming. And, you know, and I couldn't understand them. They'd give me half a cup of coffee. And I used to think, God, you're cheap. You know, I can't even get a full cup of coffee. And I was a shaker, and I never realized in those days, people that loved me enough and cared about me enough, but they never humiliated me, and they never put me down. They just told me to keep coming back. And all of a sudden, I'm back home, back to AA, and back out drunk, and they're not another. It was so bad, it was like running in a circle, and I kept meeting myself, and every time I'd meet myself, it seemed like an explosion. And all of a sudden, I go home one day, and guess what? Donna told me she's pregnant again. And I remember the night my son, son Wes was born. We were up in East General Hospital, and Wes was 31 minutes old, and the doctor came out and asked to see me, and he asked me if I signed for an operation. And I asked him what was the matter, and he told me my son Wes had been born crippled, and he had a half a heart. And all my life, I'd been brought up in the Baptist faith, go to Sunday school twice on Sunday, back to church at night, and listen to this loving, forgiving God that will look after all things to all people and be good and everything else. And all of a sudden, that doctor told me that night, my son had been born crippled, and he had a half a heart. The very first words out of my mouth, if there's a God, why would you do that to me? Never giving any thought to my sons or my wife or anybody else, just why would you do that to me? And I made a deal in the hospital that night with God as I understood him. I said, God, if that's the way you want to be, you go to hell, and I'll go my way. Because I don't want anything to do with a God like you. And I honestly believe that's where my road to destruction started from that night. And the slide was so fast, it was just terrible. And it got to a point that I knew by this time I was dragging everybody in the world down. And the trips in and out of jails and in and out of hospitals and the shock treatment started. And I'm not going to take you through all those things because, God, if you've never been through a jail or a hospital or a mental institution or experienced a shock treatment, I pray to God you never ever have one. If you've had them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it was just absolutely awful for the next few years. It finally got to a point in life that, you know, I st all of a sudden my wife started to have these nervous breakdowns. And I thought, my God, not much wonder I drank. 
you know, she keeps having these nervous breakdowns and loading me up with kids, and you know, I just can't handle this. I was always ready to blame anybody for anything. And finally it got to a point, I was sitting downtown Toronto one night, and I knew by this time I didn't fit in with A people, I didn't fit in with Earth people, I didn't fit in with anybody. And I knew the shame and the humiliation and the degradation that I was putting my family through, and I couldn't live with it. Because again, that remorse and the guilt and the feelings that I couldn't handle. And I made a decision that day that the easiest thing for me to do is just get the hell out of this world and I wouldn't bother anybody anymore. And I remember when I made that decision, again, that little voice in the back of my head was saying, do it this time, Ernie, and there'll be no more pain. And I drive my car up Avenue Road, and finally I get it, so I got up and up nerve, and I ran my car into a telephone pole. And what I tell you from here is hearsay, because I don't remember anything about it. It's things my wife told me and doctors have told me. Obviously, they took me to Toronto General Hospital that night, and as they took me in the hospital, there was a brand new intern on duty his very first night in the hospital. And lucky old him, I was the very first patient he got. And they thought I was dead and arrival, and he didn't want to sign the death certificate. Anyway, there was a man next door that had a massive heart attack, and they had one of the better heart specialists there, Dr. Ray Patterson. Anyway, they went in and got Dr. Patterson. Patterson came in, he cut a hole in my chest, and they sent a police car up to get my wife, and he got my heart going again. My wife told me after, he said, you know, Dr. Patterson came out of the operating room, and he said, you know, Mrs. Martin, he said, if your husband lives, he said, it's up to a power greater than himself, and he has to have that desire. Now, where in the hell that man ever got those words, I'll never ever know. And I remember before I ran that car into that telephone pole, ladies and gentlemen, I had a hatred that I just couldn't seem to explain. I hated everything in this world, and I hated you, and I hated the world, and I hated the program, and I hated everything. And when I finally realized I hated me so bad, you see, that's the eyes that I had to look at the world with. And it wasn't hatred for you, it was hatred for me. And when I woke up in that hospital some 13 or 14 days later, I had a consuming hatred that I couldn't seem to explain to anybody, because I figured, God, I can't even get out of this stinking world when I want. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's nothing. You're just sort of stuck in limbo. And I thought out of that whole mess, the only thing I've created, uh, this is a Frankenstein monster. And I had, you know, a broken shoulder, a broken leg, and I lost one lung, and I had 500 and some odd stitches in my face and head. And I thought, my God, I'm going to have to walk around like Frankenstein for the rest of my life. And my sponsor told me so many times, he said, you know, you look back over your life, he says, something good comes out of everything, and I realize that today. I know I'm no roaring hell to look at today, but thank God for plastic surgery. I look a lot better today than I did some 20 years ago. And the odd time at a meeting such as this, you know, I have a woman come up after me and give me a kiss on the cheek or something. I'd love to tell her, honey, you're not kissing my cheek, you're kissing my belly, but you just don't say something. Like And going back to that point, did I hurt anybody? And I said, no, so many times. I forgot I couldn't work for over a year. And, you know, I never told anybody until I came into the program almost a few years later that I couldn't tell anybody I had to go on welfare. And I even conned my wife into going and cash the checks because if I went to a checks and cashed a welfare check, he knew I wasn't doing well, and I couldn't tell people that. Finally, after a year, I got back in sales and back in trouble again as usual. And finally, I was working for the sales organization one day, and he called me in the office, and we were standing in the office, about stage half this size, and he said, Ernie, we've been sold to an outfit in the States, and he said, I've been told that you're rid of all the garbage in Toronto. And I remember looking over my shoulder for all the garbage he was talking about, and I was the only one standing there. And he asked me if I'd ever heard of a place called Oshawa, and I said, yes. And he said, you go to Oshawa, I said, and cover that area, he said, and send in your sales reports, and he said, and you stay out of the booze. And he said, you remember, I'm doing this for one reason, one reason only. And I said, what's that? And he said, your wife and kids. And in reality, that day, that man was saving my life materialistically, Bo, and he said, remember, I'm doing this for one reason only, for your wife and kids. My first thought was, Bo.
The reason you're doing this is because I'm the greatest salesman you got. You go after me and throw it out me. I never had a damn bit of trouble with humility until I arrived at this program. <laughs> I really didn't. But again, I gained that chance and I ran home to Donna and said, guess what? I've been promoted. You know, and everything's going to be wonderful. And the geographical cure and we go out to Oshawa. And again, I forgot the fact my sponsor lived in Oshawa. And I arrived in Oshawa and everything's going to be different. And I'd love to tell you it was. And I ran into Davey again. And Davey told me one more time. He said, Ernie, why don't you come back and try it one more time? And back I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I walked into the Lakeshore area group and the Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd love to stand up here tonight and tell you we've got the best groups in the world up there. But obviously we haven't. Because you people keep telling me down here you've got the best groups in the world. And I have to believe you. And I'm not going to debate that. All I'm going to tell you is we're known as the heart of AA. <laughs> anyway, when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous in the Oshawa area, people put out their hands to shake hands with me. And they didn't look over the shoulder, and they didn't look down at my feet, and they didn't talk to somebody next to me. They talked to me. And they said, how are you doing? And they actually stood there and waited for an answer. And they said, do you want to go to a meeting tomorrow night? And I said, all right. And they didn't say, we'll meet you at the meeting. They said, where do you live? And we'll pick you up. And for the next two and a half years, at 5.30, 6 o'clock, every night there was that damn beep beep in the driveway. And I used to think, don't you people have anything else to do in this world except harass me, like leave me alone. And again, I'd love to tell you I stayed sober, and I didn't. And the longest I had in 13 years, the longest period of sobriety I ever had was three months of continuous sobriety, and I hated every damn end of it. I would have been better off drunk because I had a hatred, and I wouldn't listen, and I wouldn't listen to your philosophy, recovery, or anything else, and nothing changed. But at that time I was in Oshawa, I was associating with an awful lot of members because they wouldn't let me go any other way and they dragged me to meetings whether I was drunk or not. And finally there was a girl getting a medallion in Oshawa one night and her name is Janice. And it was her one-year medallion and I wanted to go and see Janice get her one-year medallion. And the reason I wanted to go and see Janice get her one-year medallion is because Janice and I had been having a love affair that nobody knew about. It. Not even Janice. <laughs> 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 And Janice had been born crippled and she had polio and she walks in crutches and Janice had something and she still has it to this very day. God, when that girl smiled, she lit up her room. And every time Janice smiled at me, she made me feel good. And I wanted to see her get her one-year medallion. I went in the meeting that night and as usual, they had a humorous speaker that night and about halfway through the meeting, that's the night I knew you had all gone crazy. Because about halfway through the meeting, I looked up and the ceiling was actually coming down. And the walls were closing in and all these funny things were coming out of the back of people's heads and everything. And you didn't even see it. And I thought, the hell, you stay here if you want. I'm getting the hell out of it. Like, you know. <laughs> and I literally knocked over tables, chairs, and everything else that night. And I went the worst drunk I've ever been on. It wasn't long by any means. It only lasted a matter of about four or five days. And it's the only one I like talking about up to today because it was the last funk I had. And at that time, I was associating with a lot of guys out of Ajax group. And Ajax at that time used to meet on a Sunday night. And if you weren't there on Sunday night, they sort of put out a hunting party for you on Monday morning. And I wasn't there, and they put out the hunting party for me by a guy by the name of Jack Elm. Jack got a hold of my wife the following on Wednesday. And between my wife and him, they figured out the logical place I'd be, and the logical place I was was a place called the Cadillac Hotel in the city of Oshawa. I'm not going to tell you about the Cadillac Hotel. I'm just going to tell you every city in the world has a Cadillac Hotel, if you know what I mean. And again, I'm going back to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the way I interpret it anyway. And it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, in my interpretation, to carry the message of AA. It doesn't say where to carry the message. It says to carry the message to the best of your ability. 
And thank God that night Jack chose to carry the message into the lounge of the Cadillac Hotel. And I don't remember him being there. And he told me afterwards he got me outside and I was always a belligerent, mostly drunk. And he said he thought of that passage to carry the message the best way you know how. Now please understand I do not recommend this as doing the 12 steps call, but it's the way it happened to me. And Jack chose to carry it the best way he knew how. He just up and he hit me a shot right in the mouth. And the next thing you know, I woke up at home and got out of laying on the couch and I had a sore jaw. And I knew it was Wednesday night because my wife wasn't home. And all of a sudden she came in the door. And you see the previous 10 or 12 Wednesday nights, my wife had been disappearing every Wednesday night. And we weren't in the best speaking terms, you know, and I wasn't about to ask where she was going and she wasn't volunteering anything. But I knew by this time she'd really flipped. You know, she'd really got sick now. Because I was the type of person, when I was coming off a of drunk, I'd get up and I'd be sick and shaking and gagging. And I'd sort of put my head in Donna's shoulder and I'd say, Don, I think I'm going to die. And she'd sort of pat me on the shoulder and say, I'll get some soup or go for a walk or something like that. And then all of a sudden she started disappearing on Wednesday night. And I'd get up and I'd go to put my head in her shoulder and she should move. I'd damn near fall on the floor. <laughs> and I'd say, Don, I think I'm going to die. And she'd say, when? You know? <laughs> I thought I hated her head. Yeah. I thought I hated the head. God, I come to find out about Alma, you know, and I hate them even worse. And the discovery I came to today, and God, I am the firmest believer in this, ladies and gentlemen. Alcoholism is a family illness, and alcoholism is a family recovery. The happiness and the family. The happiness and contentment we've got today, I know I wouldn't have without Al-Anon. And the saddest thing I ever hear around the program today is usually somebody knocking Al-Anon. And the sad part of it is the person that's knocking it is the person that so desperately needs it. And that's really sad when you think about it. And I did another same thing that Wednesday night. I got up off the couch and I went up the bedroom. And I hadn't been in that bedroom for some two and a half years for some strange reason. I don't know what it was. And I remember sitting on the bed that night, and I didn't believe in God, heaven, hell, or nothing else. And I remember sitting on the edge of that bed, and I said, I'm beat. And I didn't know who I was talking to. Maybe it doesn't mean very much to you, ladies and gentlemen, but it means total, absolute surrender to me. One more little drunk story I'm going to tell you here, and then get off it, because I believe it's so important to understand the type of person I was and why those words were so important. In my drinking days, career days, for lack of a better word, I used to make a lot of court appearances. I don't know why. <laughs> and every time I get in court, you know, the judge, first guy get up, he get a $50 fine, next guy get a $50 fine. I get up and they always say, we got to have an example. You know, and I was always a damned example and I could never figure that out. And the last time I was in court, it was my fourth charge of drunk driving. I remember the judge saying $500 fine, a license suspended for three years. And I turned around to walk away and he said, in 30 days in the Don jail. I'd done two days and five days. I was sort of doing it on the installment plan. And I remember that day he said 30 days and I turned around and told him who I was and how important I was and he, you know, he had a one-track mind like he just kept saying 30 days all the time. And finally we got to a point and I said I couldn't and he said I could and I said I couldn't and he said I could and he found out I could and away we went. And, 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 and I get over that old part of the Don Jail and I don't know if you've ever read about it. They closed, since closed that Don Jail down. Thank God they did. It was built in the early 1700s, you know, and sometimes I still have nightmares about it. And I went into Don Jail and again the guard gave me my size 12 boots and I wear size 7. We're slopping around and up the dorm we go and when we get up there he handed me a bucket and brush and said scrub the floor. Obviously he didn't know who I was so I told him who I was and that didn't seem to impress him. 
And he kept insisting on the scrub on the floor, and I said no. And finally he went away, and he's back in about two minutes with this other guy with some stripes in his arm, and they handed me the bucket and brush again, and I said, no, I'm not scrubbing no floor. And they opened the jail door and said, come on. And I thought, good, you won't work to throw me out. I'll be home in about a half an hour. I never realized there was a hole in the old part of the jail. And still times I, sometimes I still have nightmares about it. Now, I know I'm not accurate on this, but to the best of my recollection that I remember that hole in the Don Jail. It was eight and a half feet wide, and it was nine and a half feet high, and it was 14 and a half feet long. It had a hole cut in the cement over in the corner where you went to the washroom and had a steel spring on the two two-by-fours and an old gray blanket you slept on. And every day at 11 o'clock, they brought you out of that hole and they gave you a bowl of green pea soup with some ham in it and three slices of white bread and they handed me a bucket and brush and said, scrub the floor. And for 28 days, every time they handed me that bucket and brush, I said, shove it. Nobody in this world is going to beat me. And back down that hole, I'd go again. And God, every time they closed that door, I wanted to wash that damn floor so bad. <laughs> but nobody was going to beat me. And when I sat in that bed that night and I said, I'm beat, I believe the grace of God finally entered back into my life. And Jack knew me well enough again, but I couldn't move without a drink. And somewhere during the night, he got a case of beer. And he got me up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and, you know, again, sat there and watched me try and get a couple of beers down and stop the shakes. And then he hustled me off to a doctor in Oshawa, a doctor by the name of J.P. Marusis. He's not a psychiatrist, he's a psychologist, he's an MD, and I think he's one of the most caring individuals I ever met in my life. And that man took me into his office and he started to talk to me. He talked to me from almost 8 o'clock in the morning until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And finally he said the strangest thing to me. He said, Ernie, I've been talking to you for a long time. He said, I want you to do something for me. And I said, what's that? And he said, smile. And I was 33 years of age and I didn't know how to smile. And he had me stand up in front of a mirror and push my fingers into my cheeks trying to make a smile. And he told me a story that day that I've never ever failed to tell any time I've ever shared. Maybe it doesn't mean much to you, but it means total sobriety to me. And Marusa told me, he said, you know, Ernie, he said, I love fresh flowers. He said, my favorite flower in the world, he says, a peony rose. When peony roses are in bloom, he said, I wake up in my house about 6 o'clock in the morning, he said, and everything is dead quiet. He said, and I walk down the end of the yard, and he said, and I pick a peony rose off the bush. And he said, and I sniff the fragrance of it. And he said, maybe for that moment, moment and a half, he said, I've got supreme, sublime happiness. Then he said, I've got to come in the house and the dog barks and the kids wake up and I've got to get dressed and come in this office and listen to crazy people like you for the rest of the day. He said, did you ever stop to think if I get a moment and a half happiness a day, what makes you think you're entitled anymore? And he also said one other thing that day. He said, if I only put a moment and a half effort into something, what do you think I'm going to get out of that? In my opinion, ladies and gentlemen, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has never ever failed in over 50 years. A lot of people have failed at it. I know I was one of them because I put absolutely no effort into it. And Marisa said another thing to me that day. He said, Ernie, go back to Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, because where else was there left for you to go? And as I look back over my life, that day I'd been in something like eight institutions, drying up clinics, calling whatever you want. I tried psychiatry, psychology, addiction research, every religion known to God and mankind, and nothing in this world would stop me doing that. And I made a decision that day that I was coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous, and if you people told me how to get sober for that one day, I'd do anything in the world you told me to do. And if you told me to stand on my head in the four corners of Oshawa at noon hour that day and to get me sober, that's what I was willing to do. And again, my sponsor got a hold of me, the old timers, and Davey gave me the best piece of advice anybody in this world's ever given me. He said, you come in this program, and you shut your mouth and do what you're told to do. Don't argue it, don't debate it, just do it. He said, I'll do anything in the world to help you when you come and talk to me, when you've got a problem. But don't come and talk to me until you read that book. 
And he said, you go through the motions of those 12 steps. And I said, I don't believe in those steps. He said, you go through the motions and you will come to believe. And I did shut my mouth and I went into the 12 steps and I went through the motions. And I came to believe. And I believed the fact that I was totally powerless over alcohol and my life was completely unmanageable. And you said, when I come into this program, things would happen and things did happen. I came into September the 11th, 1970, on the 13th of September they foreclosed on my house, on the 15th they repossessed my car, on the 18th they got fired from my job. On the 19th I'm sitting in the lawyer's office in Oxford, he said, you owe 13000 and some odd dollars and six cents, how would you like to pay it? I got a wife and four kids and 32 bucks worth of furniture sitting from a house I'd just been evicted from, you people told me if I was ever in trouble, come on back and you know where I came. <laughs> and you know what you told me? Get honest. And I thought a hell of a lot of help that is. And I realized today it was the best piece of advice you ever gave me. My total belief, the whole backbone of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was based on total complete honesty within myself. And when I got that honesty, things started to change. And third party people started to enter my life. People that cared about my drink problem that realized if I was trying to do something, they were willing to try and help me. A lawyer in Oshawa heard of me by reputation only, heard I was trying to get sober. Out of that whole bankruptcy, salvaged me a thousand dollars. A friend of mine in real estate heard I was trying to get my life straightened up. He kicked back his commission and everything else so I could buy the old house in Oshawa. And believe me, it wasn't because I liked the antiques. And I moved into that house that day and I thought the end of the world would come. And again, the old timers told me, you want this program, you go to meetings upon meetings upon meetings. And when you get so sick and tired and fed up of going to meetings, you get up and you go to one more. And I went to meetings upon meetings upon meetings. And things seemed to me didn't seem to change. And all of a sudden, a few of the old timers, I'd walk into a meeting, they'd say, God, Ernie, you're changing. And I couldn't wait to get out of that meeting to go look in the mirror. And I'd run home and look in the mirror, and I couldn't see any change. And all of a sudden, the realization started to happen to me that what you were talking about in this program. When I was drinking, I was the type of person, if I pulled home at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, my four little boys would go and run and hide under the bed. Because they didn't know if I was going to kiss them, kick them, or what I was going to do. All of a sudden, I'm three months sober, and I pull in the driveway, and got all four of them running up to meet me in the driveway, and throwing their arms around my leg, and giggling and laughing, and asking if I'll take them somewhere. All of a sudden, I'm five months sober, and I walked in the kitchen one day, and Donna walked up and gave me a kiss. And I thought, my God, she's madly in love with me again. She really, truly is. And she never told me for a year and a half later it wasn't she was in love with me. She just didn't know how else to check my breath. <laughs> The good part of that is she hasn't stopped doing it in the last 17 years, so I think that's good. And things started to change, and I went to meetings, and I came to believe, and I believed in you people, and I wanted what you had, and I didn't have this concept of God. I wanted your contentment and serenity, and you told me if I wanted that, I had to believe in principles, and the 12 principles were in the 12 steps. And as I went through the steps, I found a way of recovery and a way of change. And all of a sudden came that magic night, that one-year medallion. They handed me that one-year medallion. That's the first time I'd ever completed anything in my life. And I remember my sponsor, Davey, coming over to me after the medallion. He said, Ernie, he said, tell me something. And I said, what's that? And he said, tell me all the people that are patting you on the back in the last year and told you you've done a terrific job. And I said, hell, I don't know. He said, tell me all the ones that kicked you in behind and told you to smarten up. And I named all six of them right off the bat. <laughs> Six people that loved me enough and cared enough to risk the friendship to tell me when I was out of line. And thank God they did. They saved my life and they're still doing it today. My second, third, and fourth years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it seemed I got that Midas touch. God, I could do absolutely nothing wrong. I became very materialistic. 
And, you know, I had to have that $200,000 house, and I had to drive that Lincoln Continental, and I had to wear those 500 bucks suits, and I got so to the point I'd even drop into meetings, and look at you lucky people, see how well I was doing. It was so bad, honest to God, I was going into that dialogue prayer to see if there were any messages for me. It really was. <laughs> And again, thank God for the old timers. You know, they'd look at me then and they'd say, Ernie, you're sicker now than you've ever been in your life. Go back and read the book. And I knew things were starting to change. And I thought I was a reincarnation of Bill Wilson. I really did. You know, and, and I'd look and I'd pray. And I had a concept of this God, but I knew I was losing this contentment. And I prayed to God, please don't let me lose. I had no thought of drinking or anything else. Just please don't lose me that feeling. And God answers me in some strange ways. Maybe it doesn't make sense to you, but it makes sense to me. And in my fourth year of sobriety, I was put in total bankruptcy. I was completely wiped out. And that was the greatest lesson I'd ever learned in my life. You see, the happiness and contentment has to come from within me. Anything I can count in a bank or wear on my back or drive down the road, they're nice to have, but it isn't the happiness. The happiness is within me. And all of a sudden, the things started to change. And the hardest concept I ever had to grasp when I came into this program was living a day at a time. I just couldn't seem to understand that. And that little son of mine that I told you about, Wes, was born crippled with the half a heart. That little guy had something like 27 operations in his life. And he lived pain. He experienced pain. And when we, I came into the program, I used to sit in my front veranda and we sort of reversed the roles. And he became the father and I became the son. And he used to sit there and he'd say, you know, Dad, he says, sometimes the pain is so bad. He said, I just don't think I can make it for one more day. He said, but I take a deep breath, and he said, I think of something good, and all of a sudden it's tomorrow. And, you know, he taught me to live one day at a time. And in my fifth year of sobriety, sixth year of sobriety, Wes was getting pretty bad, and he had to have another operation, and he went into Sick Children's Hospital in Toronto. And he had the operation, they told us it was a real success, and my wife and I were up to see him in the, op- in the recovery room. And I don't know if you've ever seen a heart operation or not, and he had all these tubes and pumps, and we were talking to him, and he seemed to be doing good. And finally we went to leave, and he said, Dad, would you come back in? He said, I'd like to talk to you. And I walked back into the room just myself, and he said, would you do me a favor? And I said, sure, Wes. And I don't know why I'd never ever lied to that boy. I'd lied to everybody else on the face of this earth, but I'd never ever lied to him. And he said, the favor I want, Dad, is promise they'll never do this to me again. He said, it hurts too much. And I said, well, I promise they'll never do it to you again. And I walked out of the room and I told my wife, and she said, well, why did you say that? And I said, I don't know. Anyway, we got home, we got a phone call early the next morning. They asked us if we'd come back in the hospital. They said some complications had set in. And I walked in Sick Children's Hospital December the 13th, 1976, and they told me my 15-year-old son, Wes, died that morning at 8.30. And ladies and gentlemen, I found out that day I was the biggest hypocrite that ever walked around the program of alcoholics and honors. You see, I stood up at a lot of podiums like this, and I thumped and banged this counter and told you people I had an undying faith in God, and nothing could shake my belief. And when that doctor told me my son died that morning, the very first words out of my mouth, if there's a God, why would you do that to me? I again never gave me any thought to my other two or three sons or my wife, just why would you do that to me? And my friend EDT in Oshawa, she used to tell me so many times, she said, Ernie, I don't care how long you're sober, sometime, somewhere, you're going to have to go to the mountain by yourself. And I never ever knew what she was talking about. And about three months after Wes's death, and again, no thought of drinking, but I just couldn't seem to get back to this program, I had to go to that mountain by myself. And I came to believe in a God whom I choose to call God today. He's all things to me, and he gives me the direction of what I mean. And I don't tell this story to be sad. I think it's a happy story. You see, for six years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I prayed every day to a God, please don't let my son hurt anymore. 
and God answered me the best way he knew how. He didn't take my son off me to punish me. He took my son off me because he don't hurt no more. And he's not crippled and he can run, he's free and he can do whatever he wants. And I think back of things and I remember when Wes was about nine, ten years old and he was like me, he wanted to fit in the same as everybody else. And he said to me one time, Dad, would you do me a favor? And I said, what? He says, buy me a two-wheel bike. And I said, what do you can do with it? You can't ride it. And he said, well, if I learn to ride Ernie's bike, he says, will you buy me one? And I said, sure. So for about three weeks, he got on that damn bike, and he fell off and got on and fell off. And finally, after about four or five weeks, I was looking out the backyard one Saturday morning, and he was on the bike, and he fell off, and he hit a rock with his chin, and his chin was cut open, and blood run down. I went up and picked him up, and I said, Wes, give it up. You're not going to make it. And he sat on the ground, and he looked at me, and he said, let me try it one more time. And he got up and ruined the damn bike. I don't care if you're one day sober, 35 years old. I don't care how long you're in this program, if you're one day of 35 years, sometimes we get to a point in that program we just don't think it's worth it. Maybe the loneliness, maybe the change in life or whatever it is. My God, if you ever get to that point in life, please get up and try it one more time. Maybe this time you'll ride down by. What's it like today? I think it's absolutely fantastic. It really is. I don't have that $200,000 house I told you about, but I got a home with an awful lot of love in it. I really, truly have. My wife don't run around and make coat because she don't sit home and cry anymore. She really doesn't. And I sometimes get envious of people in the program today telling me about their daughters when they walk home. Their daughters love them and hug them and everything else. And I don't have that. I got three sons. I really do. And they don't run up and hug and kiss me. The other night I was sitting around over supper and my 19 year old son told me I was decent and I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> and the things started to change. And all the biggest thing I had within this program is the gratitude I feel for you people. I wish to God I could express it and I wish I could express the way I feel about the 12 principles of recovery and I've really never been able to do that. But the one thing I learned, and I learned it a few years ago, and it took me so long to learn because it seems I was such a slow learner. When I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous so many times, when you put out your hand at that door and you said, Ernie, come in here and take our hand, I didn't realize you were saying, come in here because we love you. And it took me a long, long time to come back and say, I love you too. I love each and every one of you in this room with a feeling that I'm never ever really able to express. But for every kind care and consideration that you give to another alcoholic by showing the feeling and emotion and always having that hand outstretched at the door, by loving him, it's a return of love to me. And when the return of love comes to me, I have those 12 principles of recovery which I can share with other people. And this is the program that they talked about. For the 12 principles and the guideline of life that you have given me, I'll be forever grateful for. And I wish to God I could express my gratitude, which I'm unable to do. But for the biggest thing of all, when I walked in that door on September the 11th, 1970, and you took my hand, and you said, you come with us, Ernie, and we'll show you a way of life that's second to none. We'll show you 12 steps and 12 principles to live by. And if you'll practice these 12 steps and 12 principles to the best of your ability, we'll show you a life that's unequal to anything you've ever lived in your life before. You'll be happy, you'll be content, you'll be serene, and you'll find a God of your understanding, and you'll have a second chance at life. And for giving me that chance, my wife thanks you, my three sons thank you, and from the bottom of my heart I thank you. God bless you.